Hello again, and welcome to Global Exchange, part of the Canadian Global Affairs Institute's podcast network. I'm your host, Colin Robertson. On this episode, I speak with Fiona Hill about Vladimir Putin and his confrontation with the West. Listeners will recall our conversation last fall with Fiona on her memoir, There Is Nothing For You Here, and we will link to that conversation in the program notes. To remind you, Fiona is currently a senior fellow at the Brookings Institute, where she continues to focus on Russia. As an advisor on Russia and Eurasia, she served in various capacities to to three administrations, George W. Bush, Barack Obama, and Donald Trump. That experience and her Russian expertise is reflected in her memoir, as well as in a recent foreign affairs article, The Kremlin's Strange Victory, How Putin Exploits American Dysfunction and Feeds American Decline, or Fuels American Decline. Her 2013 book, Mr. Putin, Operative in the Kremlin, co-authored with her then colleague Clifford Gaddy, looks at the many dimensions of the Russian leader, history man, survivalist, free marketeer, outsider, status, case officer. It is still a go-to source for those who want to better understand the Russian leader. In fact, I was just spent part of the afternoon looking at it again, reminded how well-written it is. So indeed, a, a plug for the book. But let's get started. Fiona, what drives Vladimir Putin? Well, thanks very much, first of all, for having me, Colin. And, you know, obviously this is a pretty got a grim framework, isn't it, for um, a follow-up discussion. I don't think we'd have fully anticipated that we would be where we are now, which is in the midst of a, a massive Russian invasion of Ukraine. But when we kind of look into the drivers of, you know, what drives Vladimir Putin, I think we can actually see some signs of how we've got here. But I do think at the same time that this was not inevitable. So there's various things that we can talk about along the way where things might have taken a different turn but it's also the case that this is one man's war in terms of the decision for going into this war was very much Vladimir Putin's and it's a I think a a factor of many of those uh, different sort of personalities of Vladimir Putin that Clifford Gaddy and I wrote about in the book and that you just cited there and those are kind of out of balance right now in many respects Putin always remains the case opera uh, case um officer the operative in the kremlin the guy who came out of the kgb you can take him out of the kgb but you can't take the kgb out of him in other words the person who is pretty much focused on subversion on you know ruthless operations um you know black operations but also somebody who's been very much shaped by the soviet experience in the soviet period the kgb thought of themselves as the sword and the shield of the soviet union the defenders of that state by whatever means possible. And there were also people who engaged in contingencies in the search of security, because of course they were part of the massive security apparatus and they were all about state security. They would do whatever they deemed necessary. And that's the kind of security perspective that Putin retains. And in fact, the whole Russian word for security is bez apasnost, which means without, bez is without, apasnost is danger. So without danger. So the elimination of all risks. And this, I think, factors into you know, where we are today with Ukraine. One of the reasons, the pretext that Putin uh, puts forward for the invasion of Ukraine is that Ukraine was on the verge of joining NATO. We know that wasn't true. But for him, the merest hint of it, the merest risk that Ukraine could be joining NATO, or at least joining in with NATO in exercises, engaging with NATO, is something that, in his view, has to be eliminated. 
and often in eliminating risk if that means you know the sort of total destruction and the obliteration of anything that could um, any capacity any capability uh, that could um, somehow pose a risk those operatives in you know the kgb uh, back in the day it also looked out for any capability that could be deployed against them and, and any way in which they could get rid of it the other um, point uh, from Putin's background as the KGB operative was that he was trained at the peak of the Cold War. Um, his joining of the, uh, of the KGB comes in the 1970s. He's part of the levy, the cohort of young KGB officers, trainees who were brought in under Yuri Andropov when he was the head of uh, the KGB. Andropov uh, was also very much focused on uh, stamping out, eliminating the dissident movement. Um, in the Soviet Union at the time. And of course, um, you know, we also saw the Soviet Union in the period um, leading up to the 1970s when uh, Putin joins the KGB, intervening in Hungary in 1953 and Czechoslovakia in 1968 to prevent those countries from within the Warsaw Pact and the Soviet bloc, the Eastern uh, European bloc, from going their own way or trying their own reforms and trying to you know, move away somewhat from Moscow's orbit. Of course, in the 1980s, when Putin is already moving up in his KGB career, uh, the Soviet Union, uh, the Kremlin, the, uh, Moscow puts a lot of pressure on Poland. And we see General Jaruzelski, the Polish leader at the time, I mean, basically um, exerting martial law, or rather General Jaruzelski coming in and exerting martial law to save uh, Poland from being invaded as well by the um, Soviet Red Army. So Putin is very much shaped by this whole idea of how do you stamp out dissidents? And this is where Ukraine itself and another of Putin's uh, personas comes in, uh, which is history man. Right. I remember going back uh, and I talk about this uh, along with Cliff in the book. Cliff and I were both at one of these Valdai discussion um, meetings in 2011. And uh, Putin's press secretary, um, who still remains his press secretary, uh, Peskov, kept talking about how Putin reads. Putin reads all the time, he said. He reads Russian history. So he's not reading world history. He's not reading, you know, kind of any broader international affairs or, you know, something that would give a broader framework. He's focusing in on Russian history. And around that juncture, 2011-2012, is when Putin decides to come back into the Russian presidency, having spent a term as prime minister, while Dmitry Medvedev stood in as president for him, Dmitry Medvedev, a close associate of Putin's, who still remains there in the you know, Russian political firmament. And this was because Putin didn't want to, at the time, disrupt the constitutional rule of only two terms for a Russian president. As people around him put it, he didn't want to look like a Central Asian potentate, although that doesn't stop him from later in 2020 of amending the constitution to um, give himself two more terms that could take him out to 2036. It also didn't stop Dmitry Medvedev from extending the terms in office. And he said that that was not for him, that was for who came next, came Putin, who came back again from four to six uh, years. But Putin, you know, at that point wanted to do everything by the book. And as he returned into the presidency and announced he was going to return, he was a bit shocked to find out that that wasn't universally popular. And there were protests, pretty significant protests in Moscow and in St. Petersburg and other major cities. So dissidents again, opposition moving up, just like you know, there had been in the Soviet bloc in that whole you know, period 
around his you know rise into the mm -hmm. to the KGB and that really alarms him because he also has a very bad memory from the 1980s the late 1980s when he was in Dresden as a somewhat young uh, KGB officer of the uprisings against Anna Konica in uh, East Germany the collapse of the East German the GDR system and being exposed outside of the Stasi headquarters to a mob which is sort of him and his pistol uh, and you know wondering what to do and you know the, the story is that he pretended to be the interpreter <laughs> to kind of get out of the trouble uh, and and he then you know basically recalls how he'd called to moscow someone had called to moscow uh for advice on what to do and moscow remained silent and his whole thought was how moscow had not responded uh to uh, all of the events of the kind of collapse of the gdr the collapse of the soviet bloc and what was then leading up to the collapse of the soviet union and he then sees all of these protests at home, which are against his just deciding to return to office and starts to see in them all of the seeds of things that um, had to be dealt with in the Soviet period. And he reacts, you know, very strongly to this, of course, and blames the West for it, blames the United States, blames others from stirring up trouble. And in all of that context, he starts, we've already had similar protests in Ukraine, and he starts to then, I think this is a kind of a pivotal point, think about the whole kind of future of Russia and filtering into this all of his readings of Russian history. And it's at that juncture that he starts to evince and evidence a really strong obsession with Ukraine and how Ukraine and Russia have fitted together historically since the very origins of the thinking about the Russian state. Many of much of this is mythologized, actually, it has to be said. And then the kind of creation of a more modern Russia, the creation of the Russian Empire, you know, early modern and you know modern European history, that kind of whole way that uh, Russia and the Russian Empire grew up out of various battles, key battles, often in Ukrainian territory. Peter the Great, the Battle of Poltava in 1709 against the, the Swedes, for example, later battles of the of Catherine the Great and expansion of the Russian Empire into all the lands around the Black Sea coast that are now part of modern Ukraine, annexation of Crimea from the Ottoman Turks. And he starts to then think about how Russia and Ukraine are part of the same people, same land, uh, the same, for him, mental map of what he thinks his Russia uh, can be. And it's from that juncture onwards that we start to see ourselves on this path towards where we are now. And I think that when he contemplated invading Ukraine on February 24th, he thought he was doing something similar to what the Soviet Union had done in Hungary in 56, in Czechoslovakia in 1968, and perhaps he even hoped that a general Yaruzelsky would appear in uh, Ukraine, declare martial law, and you know basically clamped down on ukraine to bring it back into the fold ukrainians were dissidents they you know had the heresy of basically trying to be something else trying to be ukrainians or trying to be europeans or just trying not to be russians and that this um in, in many respects seems to be the sort of outgrowth of these kind of preoccupations of some of these various drivers of vladimir putin still seeing himself as the kgb guy trying to stamp out any kind of uh, security risk, the risk Ukraine would go off and not just in some other direction, all of its own, but might become part of the EU or part of uh, NATO, uh, that, you know, Ukraine uh, in its independence is a sort of an affront to his control in Russia. And then this historical obsession uh, that he's uh, uh, come up with over time because of his own self-taught um, course in uh, crash course, probably in Russian history um, over the years of sitting in the Kremlin. You've you've studied Russian history. I, one of the questions I wonder is that should we not have seen this coming? You think, uh, and you make reference to it. You've talked about his 2007 Munich speech, where he comes out and sort of says what he thinks of the West. 
the long essay that you, as you write, that he wrote, I guess, after being two years immersed in those archives in the Kremlin uh, <laughs> yeah. with his perspective. And th th there's elements of it in that great 5,000, almost as long packed with the Xi Jinping. And then the speech he gives uh, on the eve of the, the invasion. And then, of course, when you talk about the history side, you've also commented that in addition to uh, Peter and Catherine, there's Alexander Nicholas. He has these the, the statuary, which you know gives you a, another sense of this character. But, I, but then I say to you, should we not have seen this coming in a way? Yeah, look, um, you, you mentioned the Munich speech and um, there's um, his speech on the annexation of Crimea in March of uh, 2014, which you know lays all of this out as well. You know, I mentioned as I was laying things out that 2007, 2012, he starts writing about Ukraine. So he's obviously been pretty much focused on this for quite a long period of time here. And as you said, Munich speech onwards. I mean, I see, we, we kind of see the hints of all of this. And if we go back to the early 1990s, many of the nationalists, the sort of circles in which Putin runs or the circles that have supported Putin over time, they also have Russia, uh, Ukraine in their crosshairs immediately after the collapse of the Soviet Union, when Ukraine becomes independent. You know, they also um, put pressure on Ukraine, particularly over Crimea, uh, there's this, uh, I mean, real strong reaction in a lot of uh, Russian um, nationalist circles, people like uh, Vladimir Zhirinovsky, for example, who's just uh, passed away, Gennady uh, Zyuganov, uh, who's the, the Communist Party, uh, Mayor Yuri Lushkov of Moscow, a whole host of other people are constantly making comments about how can Ukraine be going in its own direction. Uh, because initially, after the dissolution of uh, the Soviet Union, there was the creation of the Commonwealth of Independent States. And there was a whole idea that that would kind of keep the band together. And Ukraine is one of the first movers to see this as um, a mechanism for civilized divorce, not of a kind of reconstitution of uh, the, the Soviet Union. And so, I mean, look, I mean, Canada is part of the British Commonwealth. Canada doesn't seem to uh, think of itself still as part of the United Kingdom. And, you know, we know that these commonwealths don't, you know, exactly pan out to, you know, bring, uh, you know, countries or retain those political and, you know, economic and other, you know, ties that might have existed under, you know, kind of a of an imperial frame. And so right from, you know, the, the get-go, there's been a lot of tension in the Ukrainian-Russian relationship from the kinds of people that Putin surrounds himself with. So absolutely, you know, as many people have observed, Ukraine's always a flashpoint uh, for people uh, I mean, in Russia. And there are many junctures on the way to this that we should have been very attentive mm -hmm. to the way that, that Putin was talking about Ukraine, to the people around him, and really paying, you know, very close attention to what we were going to do to deal with it. This is why in some of the other things that I've spoken about, I was really concerned about 2008 and the um, open door uh, policy that was adopted towards Ukraine and Georgia and NATO. Because when the idea of uh, Ukraine and Georgia requesting a membership action plan was put on the table for the April 2008 NATO summit right. in Bucharest, it was actually put, uh, I have to say, at the last minute, so to speak, because it's sort of in January and the, you know, the meeting is very early April. It doesn't give you a lot of time to work things out there'd actually been an understanding that they weren't going to request it uh, because there was a lot of opposition with other NATO members. This is a mutual um, you know, uh, defense alliance. It's not just something that expands all of its own accord. Countries you know, have to have a desire to um, enter, but you know, the other members have to uh, want to have them in as well. 
and there was a lot of opposition from Germany and France and the UK and you know many other countries, and a lot of opposition within the United States as well. But President Bush um, at the time and Vice President Cheney had, had always said that if Ukraine and Georgia asked, and the military thought that they were generally ready for you know what it would take you know a long time for him to get some you know traction with the membership action plan that they would support it and um yeah there was a lot of back and forth i was part of that back and forth as a member of the intelligence community doing deep dives with um uh, president bush about it uh, but our assessment was that this wasn't going to work out and that actually would have been better not to put it on the agenda because there was so much opposition and we were pretty convinced that there would be consequences in terms of the russians responding to this wanting to get ahead of it and the high likelihood of military action um, against Georgia and against Ukraine. And we saw that, of course, with Georgia immediately afterwards, after um, they were given this open-ended, but you know, without any detail offer uh, to um, come into NATO, um, that there was a four months later, there was the invasion of, uh, of Georgia by Russia, again, with a pretext and a whole um, you know, rationale uh, around it that didn't explicitly state NATO and the NATO membership action plan bid, but was clearly directly attached to it. And then, of course, we've seen the annexation of Crimea, which actually we'd anticipated might happen back in 2008, had Ukraine pushed forward with its uh, NATO goals. That comes after Ukraine tries to basically forge a closer relationship with the European Union um, with a, um, a basic association agreement. And then, you know, every time uh, that Ukraine tries to make a move, Russia essentially moves in and we should have been planning ahead. What were we going to do if? Because now the if is here. Mm -hmm. But we didn't. And here we are today. Now, the, certainly the Eastern Europeans who I talked to, their ambassadors all are uh, concerned that uh, if Putin was successful in Ukraine, he would not stop there. Uh, and certainly when you read some of the things that Mr. Putin's written, you get the impression that for him, the restoration of the boundaries of what were the Soviet Union in 45 would be his end goal. Is that how you read it? I wouldn't say that it's a restoration of those boundaries in a physical sense, um, you know, by the annexation and incorporation of all those territory, but certainly in the terms of his, you know, psychological and mental view of the world, that's those boundaries in which Russia ought to have dominance politically and economically. And where so the demand, yes, there's definitely much a sphere of influence, or you know, a veto power, uh, uh, basically the ability to, um, you know, say no to things that you don't like at the very at the very minimum. And you know, I think that there really is a risk that um, what Putin will do. Oh, look, it's already happening, right? We're already seeing a menacing mm -hmm. of uh, the Eastern European uh, countries that were once part of uh, the Russian Empire, um, in particular. Not all that were part of the Soviet bloc. Uh, you know, obviously there's a strange uh, relationship with Hungary uh, that is ongoing there, but Hungary was never part of uh, the Russian Empire, but with Poland, which actually right. was, of course. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, the, there's a long memories of the Polish uprising. There's a lot of enmity, enmity on Moscow's part, thinking of when Poland was independent, the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth and Polish moves in the 17th century on Moscow. You know, there's, there's still that kind of swirl of history and also that um, sense uh, from Moscow's perspective, Putin's perspective, this is in the Kremlin, that um, they have the right to actually push back on anything that the Poles, the Bolts, uh, you know, we'll see what happens with the Finns um, and uh, NATO mm -hmm. membership, that anywhere that Russia's writ uh, used to extend to uh, should 
basically reckon with uh, the power still and the influence of, of Moscow and certainly with anything that Vladimir Putin has to say. So there's also the risk in ensuring that he gets what he wants in Ukraine, or at least something of what he wants, of the, let's just say, the expansion of menace. And we keep talking about his escalation, but, you know, putting pressure on Moldova, Transnistria, the Baltic states, Poland, you know, in and around Kaliningrad, for example, to make sure that he holds on to something. Because, you know, Putin has learned over time that if he kind of makes his luck all over there and, you know, get all panicked about prospects, including this nuclear saber rattling, then we all feel relieved and feel that it was kind of, you know, any other concessions that have somehow been heading off something that's even worse. And look, honestly, we hear that right now in discourse, right? I mean, all over the last just few days, I've been getting asked by people, well, what do we do to head off this? And yes, people yes. then become very willing to give up Ukraine uh, and, you know, give up anything else. I mean, we get find ourselves in that same, you know, discussions that everybody had in Germany. Uh, I mean, in Europe, really, on the eve of Germany's invasions, um, of its its neighbours back in the 1930s, we're we're back in an old, old frame where everybody's wondering how we can head off something even worse than what we've already got. And we're all seemed spooked by Putin's threat to use weapons of mass destruction, and he seems, in that sense, to succeed. And of course, it is part of Russian military doctrine, the sort of tactical nuclear weapons. But I guess my question to you is, how real is this threat? And if so, if it is real, how do we respond? Because as you say, it's got us spooked. Yeah, and it's look, as you said, he's, as you just said, Colin, absolutely, he's already very effectively used nuclear weapons, right, at least rhetorically, yeah. you know, verbally, I mean, he's deployed them, you know, he's pressed the button, you know, kind of verbally, and we're all, you know, running around all over the place, so success. Well, for us, it seems that, that the only response is sort of mutually assured destruction, which nobody wants to go there. Yeah, and I mean, look, if we think about the Soviet period, and again, the period in which mm -hmm. he comes out of, Putin, again, is working his way up uh, in the KGB at the time of the war scares of the 1980s. Uh, I mean, I came of age, um, my teenage years and my first years at college were framed by the uh, Euro missile crisis, 1977 to 1987. And in fact, that's the reason I went off to study Russian. And in one of the last meetings that I was in between Putin and Trump in Osaka at the G20 uh, in uh, 2019, Putin put Trump on notice about, you know, basically he was saying this was in the uh, framework of uh, the uh, imminent uh, um, American um, withdrawal from the INF treaty. He was basically right. saying, look, what happens next? Your European allies and partners remember the Euro missile crisis. He said, just as you remember the Caribbean crisis. Uh, referring to the Cuban Missile Crisis. I mean, we don't call it the Caribbean Crisis. It always throws <laughs> Americans off to think, what Caribbean Crisis? Uh, you know, he, he meant the Cuban Missile Crisis. His whole point was, you know, we've been there before, we can be there again, which is exactly where he's taken us, but not because of INF, and, uh, but because of Ukraine. So, I mean, Putin has basically crossed a threshold here that the Soviet Union never really did. The Soviet Union was always talking about the use of uh, nuclear, chemical and biological weapons, which were all part of its doctrine, part of its arsenal in an existential threat scenario in which we were in a full blown war. And that then, you know, this was this was, as you said, mutually assured destruction. It was meant to, you know, head uh, everything off. Uh, Putin is doing a Kim Jong Un in North Korea. He's saber rattling because he's not getting what he wants. This is just pure nuclear blackmail, not the kind of thing that you would expect a great power, a superpower to engage in. So very different from, you know, what we saw. I mean, the Cuban Missile Crisis, I suppose, could be looked like that, but it was also about the stationing of nuclear weapons and, you know, the whole question about um, nuclear and, uh, you know, conventional military strategy involving Turkey and, you know, elsewhere, you know, in uh, in Europe. 
just like the Euro missile crisis was about the stationing of specific categories of nuclear weapons in places they hadn't been before on top of you know existing arsenals. There's none of that thing happening here. We are not stationing new categories of weapons. Russia is. I mean, the reason the United States pulled out of INF was because Russia was already testing categories of uh, weapons that uh, uh, were, were not permitted under INF. And it was already violating all of the tenets of the treaty. And, you know, we were the only ones who were adhering to it. So the whole point was to pull out to do something new. Now, what Putin has done, and this is where uh, the answer to the question about what should we do about it mm-hmm. becomes, you know, really consequential, because it's not just about INF and what happens af- after in terms of arms control negotiations that was on the table before um, the invasion of Ukraine. The United States was already engaging with the uh, with Russia on this. Wendy Sherman, Deputy Secretary and others were having strategic stability talks in various places. It raises the whole question of non-proliferation, and we're supposed to have a review, as you well know, of the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty in August, and we've put that off twice. And what Putin is basically signalling is, who cares about non-proliferation? Who cares about strategic balance? Uh, um, the kind of thing that he's doing opens up a kind of questions about whether everyone should have a nuclear weapon, a free-for-all, because he's essentially saying nuclear, nuclear weapons are just a tool. It, there's not this kind of great strategic uh, set-piece um, set of negotiation one's engages in. If people do things that you don't want them to do, you threaten to use it. So every would-be aggressor ought to have a nuclear weapon, and every country that is facing that kind of um, aggression should have a nuclear weapon to protect itself, because Ukraine... Belarus and Kazakhstan at one point sure. were nuclear powers because they inherited some of the strategic nuclear arsenal after the collapse of the Soviet Union. We pushed them to give it up and we gave in return for Ukraine guarantees on their sovereignty. Yes, exactly. And of course, you know, if you're thinking like Ukraine is now, mm-hmm. why the heck did we give yep. that up? Would Putin be invading us now? Of course not. And why would we not do to, you know, Russia what we did to, you know, obviously Belgrade, you know, during massive atrocities and ethnic cleansing and the behavior that Serbia um, demonstrated towards uh, Kosovo, Albanians and Bosnians and, you know, you name it in the Balkan wars. Well, I mean, Russia's a nuclear power. It's as simple as that. Everybody sees it. Um, it's just stating the obvious. And Putin is now behaving, as I said, in the same way as Kim Jong-un in North Korea. And we, you know, with the same kind of recklessness that you know you would you would expect from a lesser power. Mm-hmm. And so, given the irresponsibility of this, the irresponsibility of this, we need to get ahead of it. I mean, one of the things I'd yeah. say is let's not just wait around, you know, for him to actually mm-hmm. launch a, um, a tactical nuclear weapon or you know an intermediate one. You know, he's got Iskander's in Kaliningrad. He's already bragged about firing one, obviously a conventional missile, but you know, if these are nuclear capable and the poles and everybody else have said for years that they've got nuclear weapons in kaliningrad so you know we need to get ahead of this we do need to be engaging with the other nuclear powers the uk france uh china i mean i think the uk gets this the french get this but the chinese you know need to i think be in on the game in this as well because this upsets the whole global strategic balance and it really does i think open up the floodgates for other countries wanting to get nuclear weapons as a result so that's i think what we need to be doing about it right now uh, you know, I think um, President Biden. So how do we do that? And, and, and responsible is you know kind of spot on, but we need to be much more aggressive in our diplomacy about this. And and who you know, is it? Something that we do with China? Is it because I don't think the Chinese want to see the expansion of, of nuclear proliferation. The Russians never or the Soviets never wanted to see it. 
But as you say, with Putin, without a Politburo or checks and balances, yeah, exactly. he runs roughshod. No, exactly. That's it. That's the operative again, right? I mean, just as you said, there's no Politburo, there's no checks and balances. In the Soviet period, we were safer in many respects. Yeah. Because we didn't have, you know, the black ops guy, you know, going, God, I've got all of these, you know, different tools. They've already used polonium and turned Alexander Litvinenko in London into a dirty human bomb. They have right. already used um, weapons grade nerve agents that were completely banned that nobody thought was still around. A Novichok. And they've used that several times, as far as we can tell, you know, most recently against Alexei Navalny. And yes, so, yeah. you know, once you get into that kind of frame, you know, what's, you know, from Putin's point of view, you know, the difference, you know, in terms of uh, a nuclear weapon, they've already, you know, sent troops into the Chernobyl exclusion zone, you know, with all kinds of consequences, fired on uh, a civilian, the largest civilian nuclear power station in Europe, Zaporizhia, which could have uh, ended up in absolute disaster. So, you know, you can already see the slippery slope here, and we do have to, you know, take this seriously. So again, yes, I do think we go talk to China. We talk to India and Pakistan. Uh, and then, you know, we, we basically have to get ahead of this and all the other powers, you know, that we, we know have had, you know, nuclear programs have been contemplating it, you know, because I do think that this upsets it. Now, the question is what frame, right? I mean, it makes it difficult. This is where the UN system becomes um, a liability when you've got one of the permanent um, UN Security Council members who is one of that permanent club of nuclear powers that's doing this. This is not North Korea and it's not Iran. You know, how do you structure it? So, I mean, this is where we need to have some creative diplomacy, but I do think we have to talk to the Chinese. We've we've not got much traction with them on other fronts, but surely on this one, I mean, China's whole goal for itself in terms of building up its own um, nuclear arsenal was to be dominant in its region. Well, it's not now. Yeah. I mean, if you've got someone like Vladimir Putin is running around, you know, the, you you threatening a nuclear, um, well, I mean, you know, whatever version of things that he's trying to to threaten in the European space, it makes it, you know, just as dangerous in the Asia Pacific because this gives even more support to Kim Jong Un and what he's doing there, which of course we know for a fact that the Chinese find deeply threatening as well. And Kim Jong Un wannabes as well, you know, you can. You can yes, exactly. And that's what I worry about. I mean, I worry about yeah. everybody else who looks at this and thinks, well. You know, we, we know the Saudis have, have in the past, you know, thought about getting a nuclear weapon. The Turks have. I Turks, mean, the Iranians yeah. have said, of course, that having a nuclear weapon is a civilizational um, right, you know, in many respects. Um, you know, what about uh, countries in uh, the Western Hemisphere beyond the United States? No, I can see that. I, I agree. This is where, I, as you say, we need creative diplomacy. And I do think China, those who are already members of the club, India, Pakistan, need to be part of this as well. My, where do you see the Russian people in all of this? I, I looked at a poll, and I don't know how reliable these things are, which showed Putin's approval at like 80% and 80% backing the war. Now, I, I don't know how reliable it is, but I kind of wonder, uh, is this is all a consequence of state information covered, uh, coupled with his disinformation and misinformation? Well, it's that. And also, I mean, look, I mean, we all know that in times of you know, uh, great upheaval and you rally around the flag. And can, yeah, exactly. It's a rally around the flag. I mean, I'm trying to kind of think about the best way to describe this because for America, for you know Americans at what time we we tend to rally around the flag as well, right? I mean, yes. we've always you know done that when you kind of feel that everybody's out to get you, and that's basically Putin's been very successful about telling the Russian people that they're always out to get us, and he's been you know framing this for years now. 
I mean, that's been the thrust of every speech, you know, for the last 10 plus years. Yeah. Uh, and 2007 in, in Munich, that's, and he genuinely believes that. He always believes that the, you know, the West is um, trying to bring Russia to its knees. And so that's how he's projecting, you know, to the Russian people, uh, the sanctions. Uh, and, you know, a lot of people are saying, all right, great, they're all leaving us, you know, kind of Russia's being cancelled, the cancel culture, that weird reference that he made to um, J.K. Rowling that she didn't like too much about, you know, Russia being cancelled, just like she was cancelled, yes. you know, after some <laughs> unfortunate, um, you know, discussions that she had. And that's kind of how he's presenting it to, to Russians. And, I, and it's getting people's backs up, Russians who feel like they are being rejected. So I think we're going to have to have, you know, a, a much more nuanced approach it's hard to be nuanced in the middle of all of this of course as well but not rejecting russia as toxic russian culture it is kind of preposterous to you know blame pushkin for putin you know so we're going to have to basically make some distinctions here and then of course there are tens of thousands of russians from the cultural class the political class the economic class class and ordinary russians you know, who were in the, you know, equivalent of the Russian middle class who just got out of there and said, look, I don't want to be part of this. So we have to make sure that we engage with them as well. And so Putin may be toxic, but it doesn't mean that Russia is toxic. Now, I know a lot of people are saying, well, look, they're supporting this war um, or, you know, they're not doing anything against it. And it's incredibly difficult uh, to push back in the Russian context. 15 years in prison. Look what's just happened to Vladimir Karamurza you know, who obviously is a dual citizen. He goes back, he says something about the war, immediately um, a, a prosecutorial exercise is uh, engaged in and he's likely to end up in jail along with Alexei Navalny. I mean, this is what the, the Russian system is doing to show to people, look, this is what's gonna happen to you. Do not stick your head up here. So they, they decapitate any kind of opposition right from the get-go so that people can't coalesce and people can't organize and people can't take action very easily. So it takes an act of extreme bravery to actually do something. Look, people have been brave. I mean, at the very beginning of the war, they have been. But then, you know, as kind of the time kind of goes on and then there's this sort of feeling that the initial shock of the war's over, but then everyone's anti-Russian then people, you know, maybe themselves pull back somewhat. You know, it strikes me that Putin's been extremely good. And you describe this in your in your memoir of the 2016 election, Putin's ability to use misinformation, disinformation to intervene. Uh, the West used to be pretty good during the Cold War, Voice of America and the campaign, the, a lot of it sort of values based that appealed to certainly those in, 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 in Eastern Europe and probably some in Russia. Do we then have to sort of, in addition to looking at other tools, revitalize a kind of public diplomacy campaign to try and reach the Russian people? I don't know how you do it, especially when they employ the techniques the Chinese have mastered of, of, uh, of internet walls and things. Yeah, look, we are going to have to be creative about this, but you know, we have to also accept that part of the problem is that we don't have a single voice ourselves. I mean, during the Cold War, there was a kind of a shared view that Soviet Union was a problem and you yes. know, this was a system challenge. We had to do something about it. That's not the case now. I mean, look how Putin very successfully manipulated US politics from uh, 2016 and onwards, and even I would say before then. I mean, it's not that he actually manipulated the vote, but he certainly messed with everyone's minds and messed with public opinion. And, you know, we now have in the United States in particular, just a whole cacophony of voices and, you know, a lot of confusion around Russia. That's just not the same as it was in the past. 
So that becomes extremely problematic because I mean, what message are you sending? We're sending all kinds of messages all the time on full on transmission. And, you know, we look like the dystopian version of the United States that gets depicted in uh, Russian propaganda as well. Because, you know, we're absolutely all over the place. We have the midterms coming up uh, this year. We have the 2024 elections. Right. Uh, you know, we have the prospect of the return of Trump. You know, Putin probably thinks that he can just wait us all out because his propaganda, you know, finds fertile ground when he says to us and to the rest of the world, who's worse here? Now, look, we're not invading Ukraine, but then he points back to Iraq. And 2003, yep. remember a million people protesting on the streets of London, the war in Iraq, protests around the world, Canada in the United States, you know, and elsewhere, the United States has never stood back from, I mean, some individuals have and, you know, President Biden and others have, but a lot of others haven't, you know, repudiated the um, US invasion of Iraq. Some people still think it was the right thing to do, yet the rest of the world didn't. So Putin points at things like that and says, okay, look, now, I mean, we would disagree with that. I mean, there's some pretty glaringly obvious distinctions between what Putin is doing, Russia is doing, and, you know, what the United States and the West, you know, the UK, NATO, etc., have done. But Putin is, you know, getting some traction with that. And, the, uh, the, the, you know, there's a lot of uh, newspaper reports right now looking at countries, you know, outside of uh, NATO and Europe and the traditional Western alliances and people saying, look, you know, I, I don't know who's worse. Um, look at all the things. There's so much hypocrisy. Look at all the things that the US and everybody else have done. There's so much hypocrisy here. You know, Putin's got a point. And internally, no, in sort of, of Russia, you know, that's going to be very hard to turn that back. So we, we've got a, we've got a lot of problems on our hands here in terms of our communications and the effectiveness of which um, of our you know various mechanisms and our ability to push back. Canada is a middle power. You know, there are other middle powers who are really concerned about what's going on because we all depend on the rules-based system. Otherwise, you move to that Thucydian world of sort of big, small, and we get dumped into small, and small have got to take orders from big. Is there any a, any role for a middle power in all of this? Well, I think a coalition of middle powers to actually make these cases could be pretty important. I mean, you know, countries without this degree of sin, let's say. I mean, right. everyone's got their original sin, but I mean, there's um, this whole, you know, viewpoint in the rest of the world that the, you know, if you take the UK that's been very strident, look at all the, you know, things the British Empire has done and, you know, now with the United States, think of all the things that the United States has done, you know, over time since, you know, World War One, World War Two, as well, and interventions. But, you know, for countries like Canada and, you know, Australia, New Zealand, uh, you know, in the, the Western Bloc, um, Finland, uh, you know, the Nordics, the, Swedes, the, yeah, the, Nordics yeah. the Baltics, exactly, Ireland, you know, which is the ultimate yes. unaligned country. I mean, a coalition of countries of that nature that have not been empires, although Swedes were an empire, but it's been a while, you know, since uh, the 1700s, yeah. since the Swedish Empire got rolled back. I mentioned the Battle of Poltava before, you know, so <laughs> countries that haven't been, you know, messing about for a time that everybody else would remember, uh, that this might be an opportunity to actually start to craft some of these discussions that we had to have, including on the nuclear front. And so I do think, you know, trying to kind of figure out about um, ways in which your diplomacy could be stepped up to think about how to frame a way out of this, given the the global ramifications of the impact on commodities, obviously oil and gas uh, and um, grain and food security. And obviously Canada plays a large role in this. I mean, given your role as an energy producer, as well as a major grain producer, 
uh, and you know the famine that you know is likely to be beset much of uh, Africa and uh, other parts of the Middle East as a result of this. Maintaining the climate change agenda, uh, trying to kind of push back. I mean, Canada has always been quite firm, you know, on these issues of um, use of nuclear weapons as well. I mean, even though you are part of a nuclear alliance in terms of NATO, I mean, there are all kinds of roles that you know Canada could play here, uh, along with again a coalition of middle powers. Now, the relationship with China obviously is quite fraught for you, you know, as well as for others. That's going to be difficult. But I'm thinking of, of ways of framing with other countries a discussion about this. Also, that kind of north-south axis within um, the United States, but countries like Mexico and Brazil, um, the you know the uh, the whole you know Latin and South America, the Western Hemisphere. The U.S. has not been very good at having a policy towards the rest of the Western Hemisphere, okay. and Russia and China have you know moved in. Um, you know, the United States' failure, I think, to have its own regional policy. Um, Canada can also address. I mean, you've been you know much more adept. Um, but talking more broadly within the Americas, you know, for example. So I do think that there is a there's a role that uh, could be played here to lay out, particularly given Canada's own ties with Ukraine, about why this matters to everyone else. But it's not just you know the usual suspects who are concerned about this. Very good advice. My last question is something that I know preoccupies you, and that's the return to Trumpism and Donald Trump. Is it something that we should still be concerned about? You mentioned the midterms, of course, the election, we're already into midterm uh, calculations with primaries and things. Uh, is this something we really should be still concerned about in the United States? Well, yes, absolutely we should. And it's not just, you know, Trump himself, but the acolytes. I mean, the people who have, you know, taken a page out of his book um, in terms of playing to, you know, all of the different issues that, uh, that he highlighted in a very divisive way. Um, I mean, what, Trump has always done is stoke division, not um, try to seek unity. And a disunited states under either Trump himself or you know somebody else who follows in his footsteps is not um, a force for peace and stability in the world. Uh, no, so no. you know we should be deeply concerned about this. You know, and Trump um, has based his whole political position right now on a lie. Um, it's completely undermined representational democracy and um, the democratic electoral system that the United States has built up over you know, such a long period of time, restricting you know, the, the right to vote, uh, questioning uh, the outcomes of uh, the elections. I mean, basically, the electoral system and democracy in the United States um, since uh, 2016 has been more at risk from people like Trump than it has been from people like um, Vladimir Putin. Yeah. And, and this is not an issue of ideology either, because, you know, for Putin, uh, for Trump, rather, <laughs> slipping into this, you know, Putin, <laughs> Trump, you know, to be careful about that there. But you know, there are some similarities that I worry about, you know, because of the sort of nature of the presidency. And, you know, I, I, I've often described Trump as a sort of a wannabe Vladimir Putin wannabe autocrat, because he doesn't see a system in which checks and balances are important. And again, it's not about ideology. He is not a conservative. He's not a Republican. It's a style uh, and a very personalized style um, of governance, uh, the populist, you know, basically short circuiting the process that he's most interested in. He doesn't believe in representational democracy at all. And, you know, as he has said uh, quite blatantly, you know, elections only work if people vote for me. Uh, and uh, again, that is going to put the United States in a very different place from where it has been for, you know, the good last century and certainly since you know the 1960s when we tried to expand voting and 
you know, really enhance uh, the uh, uh, democratic system. So I think that that would imperil you know, Canada's position and everyone else's. Um, you know, basically, I think you know U.S. leadership is done, but also big black mark on representative uh, democratic systems and you know our definitions of liberal democracy. A happy note. Let me ask you. What yeah, you not a very happy note. Streaming these days. Yeah, well, actually, I have to confess. Sort of like I haven't had really much time to read. I've got a whole piles and piles of books, you know, sitting around that I would like to read. All right, let uh, me ask I, you I what, think, what um, we should read given the circumstances. Yeah, I mean, there's there's a number of um, you know different uh, um, books. I mean, there's a, there's a new book just come out by Gideon Rackman okay. uh, from the Financial uh, yep. Times, the about the age of the strongman, which is um, a pretty good book. I mean, that's just kind of come out, you know, obviously yes. on this um, on this uh, very uh, theme. I just got this um in the mail so i'm ready to you know to crack this open and in terms of um you know streaming i i, I when i can i listen to a lot of podcasts and yes, um yeah. was one of my favorite ones is the rest is history which is a couple of british historians who pick uh, particular themes and uh, they've um it's very entertaining and um also uh, full of all kinds of fun facts. And one of my favorite recent ones, that wasn't all that recent, was um, uh, a um, Belgian professor um, historian, uh, Vandeloo, who's written a book on the Burgundians and uh, talks about you know the Hundred Years' War. And uh, what really stuck in my mind from the, the whole podcast was that people didn't know they were in the Hundred Years' War <laughs> until <laughs> you know, it was over. Because you know there's these, these long trends in history that you don't actually see until you were at the end of it. Most of us don't see in our own lifetime. And it struck me in thinking about that with Vladimir Putin harping on about Vladimir Lenin you know, and the creation of uh, the socialist Ukrainian uh, Republic within the Soviet Union and, uh, you know, the civil war, the collapse of uh, the Russian Empire and the 1920s that maybe we've been in a hundred years war, <laughs> at, least, <laughs> at least at the very least in Vladimir Putin's mind. So again, you know, sometimes these podcasts can give you some uh, insights that you weren't um, anticipating. And I usually listen to them when I'm walking the dog. So I, I don't have a lot of time at the moment, unfortunately, to for edification, but um, a podcast right. with a dog is always, you know, kind of a as, as a as a great thing to do. The rest is history is perfect. <laughs> and yeah, it is. Yeah, book. and I mean, it's it's very entertaining. As I said, the two British historians, but I, you know, I highly recommend it. It's on Spotify. <laughs> perfect, Fiona. Thank you very much, and thanks to listeners for tuning into this episode of the Global Exchange. We were joined today by Fiona Hill, and we'll link to her articles and her books. And I encourage you to read uh, both. Uh, uh, there's no place for you here. Uh, and of course, the uh, Mr. Putin operative of the Kremlin, which has uh, been out a few years, but is certainly worth rereading given the context. Remember, you can find the CJA network on iTunes, Spotify, and Google Play. If you like the show, give us a rating. You can also find the Canadian Global Affairs Institute on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. The Global Exchange is brought to you by our team at CJAI. My thanks to our producer, Charlotte Duval Antoine, and to Drew Phillips for writing our music. I'm Colin Robertson. Thanks for joining us today on the Global Exchange.